Well, Mark 3, and we'll start in verse 7. It says, uh, Jesus withdrew with his disciples uh, to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Idumea, and from the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. And because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. And we'll just continue on through verse 13. Jesus went up at a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 that he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges. Does anyone have a better pronunciation of that? That's a difficult one. Which, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Uh, so basically, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, what we've been looking at in chapter 2 and early chapter 3, is that most people didn't understand Jesus. Most people did not get him. We think when Jesus came, if you don't read the Bible carefully, we think everyone fell in love with him, everyone wanted to follow him, everyone was enamored by him. If we read Mark correctly, we realize that's not the case. Where we left off last week, because of Jesus showing his authority, showing who he is, some leaders, teachers of the law, Pharisees, get in collusion with their own enemies, the Herodians, and they start making a plot. Okay, how are we going to take down Jesus? we got to take him out. We've got to kill him. So Jesus is totally misunderstood. But what we're reading tonight in verse 7 and following is Jesus' popularity continues to soar. I mean, he has more Twitter followers than Justin Bieber and Rihanna and, 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 and every other artist combined. Jesus is totally popular. Why? Because, let's just look at it. He's a healer. Verse 8. When they heard about all he was doing. Jesus is a miracle worker, and, and that causes him to become famous. you got to remember, they're living in a day where there are few doctors, and when they use the word doctor, it's mostly some herbal remedies with a little bit of scanty science. The average age of someone, you are old if you're in your early to mid-30s. Median age is late 20s. Uh, so like today, 40 is a new 20. Do you hear me? 40 is a new 20, and I am living proof <laughs> that that's not exactly true, but that's in my head. 40 is a new 20. And when you meet someone 71 years old, Jim Williams um, does like advanced Pilates. Where, where are you, Jim? Okay. Whoa, okay. What's the kind of Pilates you do? Reformer. Reformer Pilates. Three days a week, and he does his Tai Chi moves and all that. Like, 71 years old, and he is going for it. You just don't have that for the most part. Why? The things that we take for granted killed people. 
Small things killed people. As a matter of fact, you find in the developing world today, it's still the same. The simplest things when we can go to the store and get something over the counter is not accessible. And so Jesus is a miracle worker. And if you are ill, who do you want to meet? You want to meet the one who removes sicknesses and diseases. And so Jesus is doing that. But Jesus is doing more than that. Jump down to verse uh, 10. He healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down and cried out, you're the son of God. So Jesus also is engaging in spiritual battle. Like people are hearing those filled with demonic power talk to Jesus and he tells them to be silent. Now we're gonna get into that next week because it's gonna come up in the text next week so we'll, we won't really cover much of that tonight. But I just want you to know that Jesus has authority over the Torah. The best person to interpret the scriptures is Jesus because he's the author. He has, he has all authority uh, on earth over the Sabbath. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over demonic powers. He's the ruler. He's the king. But there's a bit of irony here, and I don't want you to miss it. This is why Mark places this sandwiched between these other encounters. It's because the irony is Jesus is doing good, and they think he's filled with demons. The demons know the real identity of Jesus. The demons say, you're the son of God. They've got it right. Whereas the crowds, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, even the disciples of Jesus, they do not know who he is. And that is the irony of tonight's encounter. It is possible to be all around Jesus and not know who he is. It is possible to go to church, read a Bible, read Christian authors, and not know the true identity the full nature of who Jesus is. And it happens today, and you definitely see it happening in the encounters that we we'll look at tonight. So what, is, what does Jesus do? How, do? how does he deal with this crushing crowd? Look back at verse, um, at verse uh, 10. He says, the many healed those who Jesus pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell down. You're the son of God. He gives them strict orders not to say anything. Now Jesus' only recourse here is back in verse 9. Because of the crowd, he told the disciples to have a small boat ready for him. So Jesus doesn't have a Benz. He doesn't have an entourage. He doesn't have a security guard. But he does have fishermen following him. So he gets them to have a boat. They are pressing on him so much that, that he needs to escape. So that's where we find Jesus. But suddenly, the scene changes. They're by the water. And now look at verse 13. Jesus goes up on the mountainside. And he called to him those that he wanted. Suddenly there's a scene change, and I want us to see the significance. Tonight we're going to be looking about how Jesus calls people to follow him and how he's calling us to follow him. And we want to follow in the pattern of Jesus' work right here. Crowds pressing, oppressing on him, all sorts of clamor of activity. Jesus has to escape to the boats to not get crushed. But then he, he goes away. And now you don't find everyone. You find a few people. Now up in the mountainside, we just passed by that because no big deal. Uh, but this is a, a parallel. Big things happen up on the mountainside. Remember, these are all Jews who had the law of God. Moses is up on the mountainside when he receives the law 
of God. God speaks to Moses on the mountainside. Jesus now comes, and he's gaining this revelation up on the mountainside. So the scenery is significant, and the call is significant. Jesus went up on the mountainside, verse 13, called to him those that he wanted. All of these small things come into play. Up on the mountain, that's where God meets with his people. So Jesus has a few people. He calls them. We've talked about this. We did a two-part series on what it means to be a disciple. You've got to remember, in the first century, rabbis, teachers like Jesus, do not call disciples. It was like today. When you graduate high school, if you want to go to college, you look around, do your research, you choose a teacher, you choose a program, you choose a professor, you choose. And in the first century, students clamored around looking to see which teacher they were going to follow. Jesus, in a real sense, breaks the rules and he calls those that he wanted to be with him. And this is just beautiful. You need to know this. If you ever choose to follow Jesus, I hope you do tonight, Hopefully you already are. If you ever choose to follow Jesus, you need to know that Jesus is the one that chooses us. You don't become a Christian because you recognize how great God is and what Jesus has done. That's not how any of it works. It's better than that. Like we read earlier in Romans uh, 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we're still rebellious, while we still don't care, while we still think that we are smarter than God, God sends his son Jesus to rescue us. That is the power of the gospel. And we see it on display. Jesus, seeing all of these people around him, he chooses those that he wants to be with him. He chooses those that he wanted. Now it's uh, significant here. If you continue to go on, verse 14. And then he appointed 12. Uh, Appointed here is the same word, Uh, for the word created. Genesis 1.1, beginning of the Bible. God created the heavens and the earth. When you take, because that's written in Hebrew, this is written in Greek. When you take this word in Greek and translate the Old Testament uh, from Hebrew into Greek, those words are one and the same. You could very well say, Jesus created a whole new group of people. And when you think back to what Moses did, with the receiving of God's law and the giving of this new community, Israel, this group of people that's going to be a blessing to the nations. And God moves a whole group of people from Egypt, sin, wickedness, depravity, death. He rescues them out and brings them to life. Jesus is reenacting what's already happened. Jesus is doing again what God had already done in the past. God called the people Israel and he rescued them and he brings them to life and he causes them to be a family in the same way Jesus is doing it. How do we know that this is a direct parallel? Because how many people does Jesus choose? Verse 14, he appointed how many? Twelve. Now for us, no big deal. Anyone hearing this in the first century, uh, the, the people call Israel, some of you who've read the Bible and remember some of the stories, how many sons were there that made up the family. How many? It's 12. So at the time of Jesus, and this is intriguing, at the time of Jesus, because of the rebellion, God had given the 12 families the land. They sinned. They rebelled. They get sent away into slavery again because of their own sin. God warned them. They didn't listen. But, but when they come back to the land, there are 12 tribes. But seven centuries before the time of Jesus, 700 years, 10 of those tribes are wiped out. 
In the northern section, the 10 tribes living in the north are so rebellious that they are wiped out. And, and so in the time of Jesus, they're really, Israel is made up of like two tribes. But Jesus is saying something significant. God had never given up on his plan to rescue people. He'd never given up on the story from the beginning. Some of us think the Old Testament, New Testament, two different stories, two different, two different ways. No, no, it's one united story. What God was doing and failed in the Old Testament because of people's wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God was now going to do once again, this time with his son Jesus at the center to ensure that God's rescue would take place. And we're living in the overflow of that. So God calls, Jesus calls 12 to his own. So Jesus is creating this new people. Now what is this new people going to do? Think back to the early story when God called Abraham who had sons Isaac and Jacob, then the 12. What was their mission from the beginning? If you don't remember it, Genesis 12 for time, we'll put this one on the screen, but write it down. Genesis 12, verse 1 says, the Lord said to Abram, this is the guy God calls to follow him, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. That's God's desire. Now, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a what? What does it say there? You're going to be a blessing. The reason God calls Abram and his family is not for their benefit alone. It's because God wants to bless the whole world. So I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. That means I'm going to be your protector. I'm going to be your leader. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's design from the beginning was to call out a people that would know him, love him, serve him, be intimate with him, and then invite everyone. That's God's design. He pulls some so that those who know him will go and tell the story and will bless and will bless and will bless and will represent God to the world so that, and hear this clearly, God's end game is always the entire world. God's desire is always to bless the entire human race. His desire is that every single human that he created in his image would know him, love him, follow him, and for eternity enjoy him. That's God's plan. So how is God going to get his plan done? It happens in this encounter, verse 13 of Mark. Jesus goes up, he calls a few, verse 14, he appoints the 12 that they would be with him. And so, so what you see here is God calls 12. Now some of your Bibles, I have the NIV, it says he appointed the 12. Some of your translations said, say he appointed 12 that are called apostles, um, there are, are, are variant Greek texts. Some of them have the word apostles in there. Some don't. But I want you to hear this. When we think about the 12, right, that we know later on, Mark 6, he tells us they're apostles. When you think about them, don't think God calls a few superheroes to change the world, and I'm not one of them, so what happens to them doesn't apply to me. No. Uh, Mark only uses the word apostle once. In Mark 6, some, some of the transcripts have it here as well, but let's just say one or two. You only see apostle once, maybe twice. You see the word disciple or disciples 45 times throughout the Gospel of Mark. I think you get the point with the numbers. God wants us to know, and Mark is relaying to us, what he does is he calls 
disciples. Some had a specific task. Apostle simply means sent one. And so some were given a specific task to be sent to do a specific thing. But Mark is not competing here and saying, some are disciples, but others are apostles. That's not his intention. Now they do have that title, they do have that role, and we honor that. But Mark wants us to know he's calling followers, apprentices, disciples. And so he calls a few for the betterment of all of them. So, so the reason this is good and helpful is because the word Christian has become really fuzzy, especially in the States. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian. And for many of us, to be Christian is to not be something else. I'm a Christian. Well, that means I'm not a, whether it's a Mormon or the, uh, I'm, I'm not um, Hindu. I'm not Buddhist. I'm, I'm not um, a Muslim. I, I'm not Jew, Jewish. So it almost, in America, weirdly enough, because we've had the heritage, it becomes like the default mode. If I'm not anything else, I guess I'm from a Christian background. Maybe you're hearing like, I don't, I don't even call me Christian. That's totally okay. But we need to remember that the key word for Mark isn't Christian or apostle. It is disciple. And so what we really need to do is to remember, rediscover, and we're going to hit this again and again and again all throughout the gospel 45 times. Because if I will grow as a not an American cultural Christian, that might help you. It most often doesn't. Because the moment you say you are something, but you have no desire to be what that something is, it's dangerous. It's called a cop-out. So I'm, you know, I got my religion covered. I'm a Christian. My parents are Christian. My grandparents are Christian. I go to church a few times. I'm a nice guy. Leave me alone. That would never be acceptable in Jesus' day. Out of a crowd that's pressing him, he removes a bunch, and he says, you, you're fully committing to follow me. And I hope that is all of our view of what it means to live as a disciple in 2013. I hope for you it's your goal, your passion to live out this called. Jesus called them by name and he calls you by name. So, but let's just look briefly because it's all in the text tonight. Let's look at three areas where we see discipleship to Jesus to be very, very clear. There's nothing vague about it tonight. Uh, discipleship. What, what are disciples? Disciples are, and three things that are going to help us here tonight. Number one, they are with Jesus. They're with Jesus. Uh, look at verse 14. He appointed 12 that they might be, what does it say there? With him. And so the goal of being a disciple is to be with Jesus, which is so helpful because it's not about something necessarily I do, which eventually you'll do something, but it's who you are and who you're with. Discipleship is about relationship, not about task. And in American cultural Christianity, for many, discipleship is about task. Well, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. Therefore, I'm a disciple. And if I don't do these things, oh, I feel bad and guilty. Well, there are some things disciples should do. But a better way to look at it is discipleship is about who I am with. Do you enjoy being with Jesus? You're like, well, how do I even be with Jesus? Well, again, maybe that's partly because we haven't understood what discipleship is all about. It is through time in the Scripture. As you read the Scripture, Jesus isn't physically present when you're on your couch or at a coffee shop, but you open the pages and you read about the Master 
And there is something that is not just, it's not ordinary. It's not like a novel. Jesus is alive when we say, I want to spend time seeing your life and what you said and how you lived. Uh, it's, it's when we're together. I see Jesus. Now don't misquote this, so put away your Twitter for a second. I see Jesus in many of you. When I look at the way you live, the way you serve, I can experience the presence of Jesus. Why? Because anyone who comes to Jesus is given the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit of Jesus is at work in your life, I'm like, wow. When I see the setup team here, like faithfully serving and putting chairs and getting th things ready, I'm like, I see. I'm spending time with Jesus as I'm with his people watching it all play out. It's beautiful. It's in prayer. A couple of the guys, um, we just took an hour and just walked around the area and went two by two, just talking to Jesus out loud as we walked along the street. We must have looked like freaks. But we're just, you know, walking in the neighborhoods and just talking to Jesus as, you know, one by one and just, just walking and praying for the houses we're around and praying for the people that pass by and praying for the flourishing of the business, businesses that we walk by. We're just, we're just spending time. That is the core of what it means to be a disciple. It is not just about ticking boxes and doing stuff. It is about enjoying a person. So maybe tonight you'll be, you'll be like reinvigorated. Let me just ask you this. How is Jesus changing you? If you look at the, these early 12, and we're going to continue to read Mark, they don't look like Jesus at the beginning. But by the end of Mark and into the book of Acts, where we see the life, uh, lives of the apostles, you see that something happened between the time of this passage where Jesus calls them out, and within less than three years, they are bold, they are taking risks for the good of others, they are standing up and proclaiming good news. They're doing the very things that Jesus has done. And so when we begin to follow Jesus, we look and feel the same. But if you've been following Jesus three, four, five, six, ten, thirty years, how is Jesus changing you? Is he changing your attitudes? Is he changing the way you think? Is he changing the way you treat people? The goal of being an apprentice to Jesus is that I would be more like Jesus. And so this is such good news. If you have messed up, just get back in the game Spend time with Jesus and watch him transform you. I think of Tim Greger. Some of you know Tim. We had him come up. Tim and Sarah and their little boy Titus, just a, not even a year old. When I met Tim, it was five years ago. He's an ex-Marine, a little bit rough around the edges, and he wanted to go to Uganda, and he was scared to death. Now, mind you, he's a Marine. Scared to death was just an oxymoron. But, but you know, he was, like, really scared about going to another country. He wasn't married. He lived a total wild life, totally rebellious, no ounce of Jesus at work in his life, even though he knew the gospel. But he came alive. He really said, I'm going to apprentice. And therefore, if Jesus goes, I have to go too. And so I watched on that first trip as Tim took little risks to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and do what Jesus would do. And it was the most beautiful thing. By the end of the trip, he's like, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. And we, we went to Uganda together three times over the course of five years. And I've watched as he met his girlfriend, fiance, 
wife and how he's become a dad and how his total worldview has changed. He had multiple cars, multiple houses as a single guy. Totally successful. And I watched him sell vehicles so he can make it to Uganda to love children. Sell that extra car. Why do I need multiple cars? Before Jesus, it, it fulfilled him. But now that he had found this life in Jesus, he realized that there's a better way. And so now Tim's not here. He's, he's really making me a little annoyed because he keeps saying, Jose, I want a video podcast. For, you know, I don't want to just hear it. I want to see the community. And eventually, Tim, if you're listening, we'll get one. But you know, Tim is spending a year in Thailand with his wife and he's doing what he does well. He's in construction. And he's helping building, build homes for potential young girls who are going to be sold into the sex trade slave, uh, slave trade. And he's, he's building a home so they could be rescued out. What a total difference! It didn't happen overnight. But hear me, in five years, I see more of Jesus in Tim than I saw five years ago. Is that your goal? So discipleship is all about relationship to Jesus. But that's not the only thing. The second thing we need to remember, discipleship and disciples are sent to preach. Jesus didn't just call people to be with him. Right after that, he sent them out to preach. And this is a tricky one because when we think preach, this is what you're thinking. Guy, microphone, stage, you know, timer. I am counting my, my minutes left on the clock before I, you know, I'm quiet. And... And so, so some of you are like, oh, is that what he does with that? Yes, that's what I do with my electronics. It's an iPhone and a timer. And, and so, so what, what is preaching? This is one small form of preaching. The word preach or cariso is the same word used of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 where it says he proclaimed the good news. And all throughout Mark's gospel and into the book of Acts, preaching is simply telling the goodness of God speaking what God has done. And so Jesus is telling the good news of God from the beginning of creation, the forming of Israel, the sin, the rebellion, and now Jesus is, is the Messiah, the Savior. And so for the 12 and for the rest of us, preaching is so uncomplicated. It is telling what Jesus has done and is doing right now. It's not just an old story about 2,000 years ago and a guy they'll never meet and, and this mythical figure that some people don't understand named Jesus in an old book. No, it is about what God has done in Jesus for sure, but what this living Jesus is doing right now. Now, because of sermons and podcasts and all this stuff, we need to debunk it. Preaching is something you can do. You are a preacher. Some of you just don't realize it or don't realize how good you are at it. So I'm here to get you to rethink your discipleship to Jesus. If you're called to be with him, you already are a preacher. Now I'm going to do something you don't like, but just work with me here. I'm a quasi-nice guy, and maybe I'll buy you a pupusa, okay? Say it, say it with me. I am a preacher. Say it with me. Oh, come on. Do it like you really mean it. I am a Thank you. I threw you all off. I I don't know. Do I come in now or do I come in later? You are. You're a preacher. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, God's given you a platform, and it's not like this. He's giving you a coffee shop. 
And so many of us, we, we go to a coffee shop or wherever it is, you go to hang out, and you've got some people around you. It simply means to include what God has done in Jesus and is doing. If he's doing anything in your world, talk about it. That's preaching. It's about helping people to know that Jesus is alive and at work. He's given you an office. Now, it may not be smart to do it like right in the middle of a work project, but he's given you a lunch hour, or for most of us, a half an hour, or, or a place to hang out after work with some colleagues. And you can simply say and speak of what God has done. He's given you a park. So many of you moms, if you've got kids and the weather's beautiful out and you go out and there's so many families just hanging out, any park all throughout the day, and it's simply including what Jesus has done. But you're like, Jose, that's the scary part. Like, that's what I don't want to do. I don't even know how to get started. I don't, I don't know what to say. And if that's you, listen, you are not alone. Uh, the 12 didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do. Jesus had to train them. And really, that's our hope and our goal in these gatherings. You would gain confidence in what you know of Jesus so that you can talk about him. You can share what you're learning. And they say, well, how can, I, how can I get moving? If you are a preacher and you are, a couple of things that you need to know. One, it's less about talking and more about good listening. You're like, well, I thought I'm supposed to proclaim. Yeah, there's a message to share, but there's this delicate balance of sharing and listening, finding out where people are at, meeting them where they're at, and helping them along. And so if you want to be a great preacher, you don't need to learn long speeches all you need are a couple of good open-ended questions. And so to be hyper-practical, I want you to be the most able-bodied, ready, bold preacher you can be. And if you'll just write down a couple of questions, this may help you. We're going to throw them up on here. Super simple. The first one, if you're talking to someone, ask about them. Tell me about your family. Does your family get along? Loaded question. There is drama everywhere. And there may be a second or third uncle who lives in Arkansas or some strange place like that. But, you know, like, it could be someone next door. It could be the person they're living with. If you ask people about their family, what was it like growing up? Did you have siblings? Did you guys beat each other incessantly or occasionally? Like, you just ask where people are at. What's going on with their family? So much will come up. Good that you can relate to. And maybe some challenges, brokenness that you can relate to. And let's find out what's going on in people. And those are the places where we can build that bridge and simply say, you know what help I have found and bring it into that situation. Has God done anything good in your family? Anything. When you hear about a bit of brokenness, it could be your moment to say, you know what? I don't know if this sounds strange to you, but this is what I have found to be helpful three years ago and go into it. And don't be ashamed to say, and when I asked for God's help, I found it. Now, if it didn't happen, don't make it up as you go along. It's called a lie. <laughs> but if, again, disciples are with Jesus, and if Jesus is really changing us, then we should expect that something great is happening. So tell me about your family. What are some of your hopes and dreams? I think most of us are willing to admit we're not exactly where we hoped and we're not doing exactly what we dreamed. So this is the beautiful thing. Pull out in people. Help people share 
What's going on in their own soul? And if you ask them, or if they're a parent and you're at a playground and they're kids, what are some of your hopes and dreams for your kids? What do you want to see them do and be and become? And maybe what, if you're willing to, if you know them well, what didn't happen in your world that you would love to happen in their world? As you pull out the dreams, goals, visions, we're going to find that Jesus has intersected with ours. And maybe their dreams and goals and visions aren't good ones. Maybe you can share about, you know, I used to want to, you know, and maybe it's in line with where they're at. I used to want to be about this, that, and the other. But I found when I got there, it wasn't as great. But you know what I've discovered? And you can bring in Jesus right in that moment. It doesn't have to be sweat, stage, lights. It could be normal. And here's one that takes a bit of boldness. But let me tell you, it's actually helpful. How can I best pray for you? As you start talking about family, hopes, dreams, all of that, what you're going to come up on is human. Human nature, human brokenness. And it's a great time to say, maybe not at that moment if they're not ready, but like, hey, you know what? I'm a praying person. How, how can I best pray for you? Not once in my life have I asked someone, how can I best pray for you and been shut down? Not once. Now, I've been sensitive. Sometimes it's right there and then. Sometimes it's like, hey, in the mornings I spend time and pray, and I will pray for that. But as the Spirit of God leads you, if you're open to say that there's a God who's listening, they may not believe that yet. But what kind of welcoming friendship when some human says to another, I care enough to talk to God about that situation? That, my friends, is preaching. And you're a preacher and so maybe we should ask God to give us a little more boldness and a little more encouragement in the preaching that we're already doing. So sharing the good news is, is part of my job, so I'm called to be with him. I'm called to preach. And then the third thing before we go to the table is that I'm sent with authority. Disciples are sent with authority over evil. This is beautiful and freaky at the same time. The disciples are sent with, with authority. Look at what it says here in verse 14. He appointed 12 that they may be with him, they may be sent out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. Let's go for it tomorrow. Come on. Let's find a demon. Let's ca Tonight, let's, let's find it. And you're thinking like, no, no, wait a minute. This is one of those we need to recapture in, in our day and in our generation. When Jesus sends out people, he does not send us out limp. He does not send us out as weaklings in a strong world. Okay, go make a fool of yourself and I'll love you and take care of you. And you can have a papusa and life will be all right. He sends out his children with authority. So when I go and, and, and I pray for someone, this is going to sound so mind-blowingly simple. God is listening and let me tell you, if you're out there telling your friend about Jesus and they share brokenness and you pray, don't you think God wants to answer their prayer for his own namesake? So you and I need to remember when I go out, I'm still me, the same normal me. I don't put on my authority voice. Hi, I'm Jose. Let me cast out the demon. You know, like, I don't have to do that. I could just be normal but when I'm confronted with your situation, I can speak to God and to evil with authority. 
and he sent them out to cast out demons. We're going to get more into that uh, next week, but just know this for tonight. The power is not mine, but the power of Jesus is in me and in you. And so when, when we're his disciples, it's not like when we're 30 years into the game, 40 years into the game, within months, Jesus sends them out within months. So the best qualified people to go out in the authority of Jesus are brand new people to following Jesus. So if you're less than six months into the game, you're just like, Jose, I just started following Jesus. For like, for real, I'm like really into this. Don't say, well, maybe one day when I'm an elder or a deacon or I can sing on stage, that's when Jesus will use me. No, right now, when Jesus sends you out, you got all the authority you need. That means Jesus is with you and anything that is impossible to you is possible to Jesus. And so when I'm going out to the friends I know and love, I can go with confidence that Jesus is there. This is good news, my friend. When I go out as a disciple, I am enabled by Jesus to do the work. Now, what do you need to know about the disciples? He gives us 12 names here. Here's the beautiful thing. We know next to nothing about all 12 of them. We know a little bit about Peter, James, and John because they show up a bunch. We know almost nothing about Andrew other than that he brings his brother to Jesus. We know nil about most of the disciples. We know Judas Iscariot rebelled against Jesus and killed himself. But the Bible doesn't give us a lot about the guys. Here's why. They were middle to lower class, mediocre at best. They are not superstars. None of them are the qualified. None of them have a seminary degree. None of them were, uh, were pulled out by the teachers of the law as excellent students in the law of God. They're nobodies. They're regular people. But Jesus loves to authorize normal people. He loves to send out people who don't feel like they could do it. Right now I'm saying, oh good, I'm glad you're talking about someone else because you're not talking about me. Jesus is saying to you, ha perfect. I've got someone who feels like they can't do it. And tonight, if you'll be bold enough and invite Jesus to lead you on, my friend, this week could be the most dynamic week of your Christian experience. It could be the most life-giving week of your Christian experience if you'll just say, Jesus, I'm available. I want to be used by you. And so tonight, when we think about these disciples, it really leads us down to two questions. Two questions we need to ask, and we're going to do it in response to worship. Two questions. The first is this. Who are you being sent to this week, right now? I don't want you to think about like this generic Jesus is sending you. Who are you being sent to this week? Who are you going to sit next to tomorrow? Who lives to your left or to your right? Who do you go to the gym with? Who are you going to find? Who is it you're being sent to? Do you know Jesus brought you here tonight to remind you you're authorized? He's given you his spirit. He's sending you out. You've got something to share this week how about we're not going to live a silent week? How about we're going to be empowered by God to say something, do something, pray something in Jesus' name? That's it. That's our assignment. But the second thing is, are you, are, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you one of his followers? He calls, he authorizes, he pulls out 12. And he says, I know you. And we get all their names and we can imply that Jesus knows every person's name and he knows your name, and he loves you, and he wants you. Close, apprentice, follower, 
life, morning with Jesus, afternoon with Jesus, eating with Jesus, good days with Jesus, bad days with Jesus. Sin, and Jesus sees it. You see it all throughout the Gospels. The disciples are mess-ups. The apostles are mess-ups. And Jesus sees it, and he lovingly brings them back, corrects them, encourages them, teaches them. Are you one of those? And tonight, uh, in the first month, uh, first weekend of every month, we uh, open up the baptismal. It's what Jesus did. All the 12 disciples, these apostles, they were baptized into the, into the life of Jesus. And those of us who are following in those footsteps, the first step that we take is we take the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and we make it personal. Uh, baptism is beautiful. It's open. Everyone sees it. And so the call to follow Jesus is a public one. And that's a good thing. In our world, it says, do whatever you want in your own little closet. No one else has to see it. Following Jesus doesn't work that way. You are on display. You're on display to the world that God is alive in his son, Jesus, and rescuing people. And so tonight, if you've not yet started to follow Jesus, we're going to invite you publicly, straight up, right here, right now to do that. And the way we're going to do it tonight is we're going to invite you to be baptized. If you've not yet said, Jesus, you know my junk, my sin, my baggage. I own up to it. I did it. I'm guilty. But Jesus, I believe that you're, you're better than I am. You're the God man. You died. You rose again to pay for my debt in full. And now I want life. And that life is in you. So I'm going to choose tonight to go down in the water and in the water saying that old life is gone the old me is gone. That old way of wickedness is gone. But because I've been washed and made new, I'm going to come up and I'm going to now live this new life for you, Lord Jesus. I encourage you tonight, take that step, make that claim. If you want to follow Jesus, what do you do? You ask him. You say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And you hear that call in your own soul. And he's like, I'm ready. I want to do that. And tonight, your physical response we're asking you tonight would be to come to the baptism. If you're not yet following Jesus, you want to do it tonight. In a moment, I'm going to get off the stage and band's going to play. I'm going to worship and sing. And we're going to invite you. The tables aren't open yet. We're going to invite you to walk forward with your family, your friends, and make your statement, make your claim. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. Now, if you've already done that years ago, but you never took that first step, we invite you to go back to the beginning. <laughs> And to, to be baptized tonight. You say, 10 years ago I started, but I never was baptized. We invite you to be courageous. You're like, well, some people are going to think it's weird because I'm already doing the stuff. Who cares what they think? Disciples want to follow who? Jesus. And Jesus loves to receive those who say, you know what? I'm ready to be baptized tonight.